Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out Swiss and European fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Jeff, who is the executive chairman and the co-founder of Cedars, probably the biggest crowdfunding platform in Europe. And we're going to find out more about what's in store at Cedars, how did it all started, and uh, what new we can see out of uh, Cedars this year. So, Jeff, how are you today? I, I'm great, Rudy. Thank you very much for for having me having me on here. We we live in interesting times at the moment, but great to have the chance to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for making the time. And uh, well, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself? How did you get to start a platform like this? Why this and not something else? Absolutely. So the the the, the high level background, so we don't take up the the entirety of the podcast just talking about me, uh, is I began my career as a corporate lawyer, practicing in New York and London. Decided I really wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I felt that that was where there was value to be created in helping in some capacity or another build businesses from scratch. Went off to do an MBA uh, and met my co-founder uh, and Cedars was his idea. And what, what he said at the time was, All right, you know, right. <laughs> and and so he said he, he he said to me you know he proposed the idea to me at the time and you know at the time crowdfunding didn't exist as a as a thing per se this was two thousand eight two thousand nine uh, we didn't have a a you know a, a sort of model to go by particularly peer to peer lending was out there and that was definitely a big inspiration for us but we were really interested in whether you could build a platform a marketplace that, you know, online marketplace that connected on one end, the vast number of entrepreneurs who are looking for capital uh, and who don't necessarily have a straightforward route to access it, either because they're too early for venture capital or they're not, you know, connected personally with angels and others. And then on the other side, maybe a little less obviously, you know, the vast number of people who we thought wanted the opportunity to invest in these businesses, but weren't venture capitalists or angels themselves. And so that was where this idea came from. And we began working on it as an academic project during our MBA. And one day we went to lunch and Carlos and I and said, hey, this thing really works. Let's uh, let's give it a shot. And we never looked back from there. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm always uh, thrilled when I hear that uh, the fellow MBA alumni from, you know, from whichever school they, they took their school project and they make it, made it a, a live business, right? Congratulations. So how can you describe Cedars today? Is it far off from what you originally thought or is it the same or, you know, how does it work today? You know, in, in many ways, it really has followed the model that we initially thought of, but it has, but the only big difference is that we have come to realize that it can apply and what we're trying to do applies much more broadly to the private company ecosystem. When we started, as you can tell from the name, we really thought of ourselves as a seed capital platform. Our, our hypothesis was that once you got into venture and institutional capital territory, whether you call that Series A, Series B, something around there, that the market was kind of working okay. But that where the real opportunity was on both sides, both fundraising and investing, was businesses before that. 
And I think that has been absolutely right that that's where a huge part of the opportunity is. But what we found as we've developed is that actually there is significant demand for what we do at much larger and later stages, larger fundraising rounds, uh, as well as larger and even institutional investors using us as a platform. So, you know, where we thought we were starting out doing just 100,000, 200,000 pound, euro pound, you know, euro pound, whatever deals. Um, and we have, you know, we do do a lot of those. And we've also done fundraising for Revolut and other multi-million uh, pound and euro companies um, or fundraisings uh, for, you know, businesses that have become really quite large. So the reach that we've been able to achieve has been more significant than I think we initially anticipated. But I'm, I'm pleased to say, if, if, if that's the right word, that the core of what we were trying setting out to do and the way we envisioned the thing working has actually held pretty steady for the 10 or so years that we've been doing it. Okay, wow. So, and are you based in London? But I also know that you have an offshoot in Lisbon, right? Exactly. So we are, we're London headquartered, but uh, Carlos, my co-founder, is Portuguese. And from the beginning, we set up uh, our tech team uh, in Lisbon. Uh, and we've had that split ever since. Now part of our tech team's Lisbon, part's London, but we've been dual, sort of dual office uh, business for a while. We've also had teams in, in small teams in Berlin and Amsterdam and very much think of ourselves as a pan-European business. Right, I see. And uh, how does the platform work? If I'm an investor, what should I expect? And if I'm a, if I'm a startup, what should I expect from the platform? So from the startup's perspective, in, in essence, you, you come to us to create a, what we call a campaign or a pitch. And it is a, a sort of bespoke form, uh, you know, including a video and other things that, that are really tailored for online fundraising. But in essence, it's the level of detail of a pitch deck. What we're asking you to do is create a version of a pitch deck on the platform and then together with us to market that pitch. Uh, to investors. So one of the features of equity crowdfunding is that it's very much a joint effort. You know, you can't just post a campaign and expect people to flock to it. But instead, what you do as an entrepreneur is reach out to your friends, to family, to customers. That's a huge segment of the investor base and say, hey, look, we're raising capital. We'd love for you to have the opportunity to be part of this. And then you begin to get investment traction out. Then our base of investors begins to notice that on the platform and says, hey, this looks like an interesting deal. They've clearly got a lot of support. Maybe they come in and start asking questions. They want more information from you as an entrepreneur, which you can share with them. Uh, and then investors come and invest through the platform. The flip side from the investor experience is a given investor might learn about us, might learn about the opportunity to invest from a particular company. So maybe you know, you're a customer of a company and they reach out to you and say, hey, we're raising money through Cedars. You know, please sign up and, and back our business. Uh, and so you come into Cedars that way. Otherwise, maybe you're somebody who's looking to build a portfolio uh, and comes to Cedars to browse around. Uh, and when you do browse, you will see at any given time anywhere from 20 to 40 investment offerings, you know, largely UK, but often from all all over Europe now, uh, and you'll have the opportunity to invest uh, uh, in the equity of the business on terms that are set out uh, as part of the campaign. And then we do all the work to bring that investment together. And it's very much not sexy, but the key part of making this kind of thing work. An investment transaction, a private company, even a small private company, um, has complexities. There's legal documentation, there's due diligence, there's regulatory aspects, there are a number of other things that go into it. And so our job as the platform is to connect investors and businesses in the first instance, but then to take investors' money to do all of the various processes that need to be done and then to allocate it to the business uh, in exchange for shares. And then we act as nominee for the underlying investors, which means that we monitor their investments on their behalf and we uh, hold their shares 
uh, for them uh, uh, and enforce their rights uh, all the way through to exit. And uh, from startups' perspective, they see all of the investors in one bucket, right? Exactly. So the, not, that nominee structure has, has advantages on both sides. From an investor perspective, it means that we can take collective action on their behalf, which is often a big problem when you're a tiny shareholder in a business. And from the company's perspective, the startup's perspective, we're the only line on the cap table. So when you go on to raise from other investors later on, it just, you know, it looks like we're, you know, we, we look like we're a fund or, or, or any other sort of professional investor. All right. And of course, everybody should understand these are illiquid investments. And I think they do, right? They're qualified investors. But you also launched a secondary market facility within the platform, right? So how does that work? Yes, I think that caveat that you just said is is, is 100% right. I mean, this is very much a high risk uh, and illiquid form of investment. And, you know, the risk is well known, I think, in, in this form of investing. But we always emphasize to every investor who comes on and has to pass our screening that any given investment is more likely to fail than to succeed. A diversified portfolio of these investments will hopefully produce a return that outperforms much of the market, but you know it is still high risk. And then as you say, it's illiquid. Generally speaking, you should expect when you make one of these investments that even if the company does succeed, you'll be waiting seven years, 10 years, you know, some, some cases even longer before you see the return. Now, on the, the illiquidity point, we have introduced a secondary market to help address that to an extent. Creating secondary liquidity in private company shares is a notoriously difficult thing to do. And I think unlike other people who've trodden in this space before and, and have struggled, uh, we never set out to solve the problem completely. You know, we've never said we're going to maintain a liquid market in you know where you can buy or sell anytime you want any of the shares on our platform. But what we have done is a little more modest. And I think in the process of that, probably been more successful than, than some. And that is that we've created an opportunity for investors who've invested through us to list their shares. They create share lots, they list on the secondary market. And then once a month for a week, interested buyers can come in and buy their shares. And if some, if they sell, they sell. If they don't sell, they don't sell. There's not a match bid offer process. It's not like a securities exchange, but it does give some investors the opportunity to get early liquidity while it gives other investors the chance to either build their stake or buy in. And, you know, it's probably a cardinal sin to say that you're surprised how well your own feature worked. But I am, you know, and, and, and have been very open about the fact that I really had no sense of how much take up there would be. I figured there'd be sell side liquidity, but how much buy side there would be. And so, you know, I think we launched this, we launched this in June 2017 and very much as a trial project and it has exceeded all expectations. Last month, the May trading window, uh, we broke a million pounds traded for the first time. Growth has really been outstanding and there really is significant demand um, on both sides. So, I, none of that says that we've solved the liquidity problem, but I think we are giving some opportunities for secondary trading where they never existed before. Right. And uh, how much money are we talking about altogether since you've raised, well, since you started or maybe the last year? How much money have you raised and how many startups uh, have gone through the platform? So we've done a bit over a thousand deals, about a ten, a thousand and fifty uh, deal. Some of those have been for repeat businesses. So that's maybe 650, 700 separate companies have raised through us. Um, and we've had a, just short of 900 million pounds, about a billion euros, uh, 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 committed through the platform. So it's been, you know, a not insignificant number. Um, but, you know, I think from where we sit, uh, it's very much just scratching the surface. I mean, the market for, you know, private growth capital in Britain, 
Europe is huge. Last year, I don't know, I think maybe we did about, about 250 million uh, of, the, of that 900 million, you know, came in 2019, uh, which is great, you know, growing quickly. But, you know, we, will, we, we, we see a day when we're doing billions of pounds or euros a year through the platform. And uh, what kind of startups are on the platform? You hinted that uh, basically that they are early stage, obviously, or pan-European, but uh, sometimes there are tax benefits to, uh, to invest in the UK-based startup, right? So, you know, can you also put a startup from another country? And also sometimes the angel syndicates, uh, they are also saying like, well, we are angels, but we only invest in companies that show some revenue already, right? So can you get on the platform if you're non-UK and you have no revenue yet? Is that realistic or maybe not? No, it, it is actually. So so, so non-UK is absolutely fine. I mean, we're thrilled to have businesses uh, from all over Europe. Um, you're right. There are tax advantages in the UK for UK, uh, for investing in UK businesses. But, you know, if you're a UK taxpayer, there's an advantage to investing in UK businesses. So it, it can be a slightly higher bar to get UK taxpayers to invest in non-UK companies, although many, many people do. Um, and we accept investors from all over Europe. Now, the regulatory structure is such that we don't market. We can't market to investors elsewhere in Europe at this point. That'll change uh, next year. But uh, for the time being, we do accept them. And some investors have just found us from across Europe. So we love uh, non-UK businesses. And actually, I think at the moment, three or four of our most popular deals on the platform are non-UK. In, in terms of stage and sector, you know, we, we have tried to be as broad-based as we possibly can. You know, part of the ad, part of the feature of running a marketplace rather than a proprietary fund is that we're not passing judgment on what we think makes a good investment. We're doing our due diligence to ensure that the business is what it says it is, that it's properly structured, that the investment is properly structured and documented, but it is up to the investors on the platform to make their decision as to what they want to invest in. That's a very core part of our DNA. And so what that means is that when we are deciding, and we only accept two, three percent of the businesses that come to us to apply, it is a, it is difficult to get accepted onto the platform. But what we're trying to do is make an assessment as to whether the market is likely to want to invest in you. And so, you know, there is having revenue helpful. Absolutely, is it a requirement? Nope. If you are a business that is otherwise compelling, and particularly in you know, what we see often is businesses that have built significant communities around them. So sometimes we have businesses that have, you know, significant followings through social media and elsewhere and have a popular product that haven't started generating revenue. We can do very, very well with those businesses. And on occasion, we can even work with pre-product businesses, again, if they've built a, a big enough community around them. So we will work with and we like to work with very, very early stage plays. We also like to work with later stage plays. And, you know, we are increasingly co-investing with venture capitalists at Series B, Series C level and beyond. Uh, so we want to be as broad of a platform as we can. And that also includes um, from a sector perspective, we do tech, but we also do food and beverage and consumer products and a number of other areas. And really anything that we think our market, our investor base wants to back, uh, we'd like to be able to have on the platform. Right. So you do have fintechs and intertechs there as well, right? Uh exactly. Fintech's one of our biggest sectors. So you know, we have, um, you know, no one sector, uh, we have 17, we, we divide our businesses into 17 different sectors, and no one sector represents more than about 15% of the platform. So it's pretty diversified. But I think fintech is either number one or number two in terms of popularity, and that includes insure tech. You know, we, we have done a lot of great fintech deals over the last few years, and they do prove very popular, I think, with investors. 
Right. And uh, you mentioned that it maybe only 3% of the startups are accepted to the platform. So uh, do you also actively look for them? Or at this stage, you're just uh, flooded by requests and uh, you just have to sift through them and uh, reject the 97%? <laughs> no, we do both. We do both. You know, we get a huge amount of inbound, which is fantastic. But then on top of that, we have a, a wonderful business development team that goes out uh, and looks for interesting businesses, particularly on the larger end of the scale. I think a lot of our smaller deals come inbound. Um, they're a little harder to identify sometimes, you know, actively, but often we'll see slightly later stage companies that we think could benefit from doing all or part of their next round through us. And so we reach out to them quite actively. And we built that team uh, over the last few years um, quite strongly. It was not a team that we had at the beginning. Uh, we did rely on inbound a lot at the beginning, but now we do a lot more outbound. Right. And you mentioned that your background is a lawyer. So I just have one question on diligence. How heavy handed or how light is it uh, when you look at the startups, uh, when you're trying to uh, decide whether you put them on a platform or not? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the key point is that we want to do things consistently with market standard. I think that throughout in everything that we do, We're trying to create an experience that both, you know, for, for, for the entrepreneurs that, you know, is maybe more efficient than, but parallels uh, what they would have in the offline world. So we're not trying to be substantially more rigorous than the market and, and, and set new bars to cross, nor though are we prepared to be, be less so. So we do a process that really is two. One is all about their disclosure pact. And this, in some ways, is a little more rigorous than what you might have if you went to a venture capitalist. But in that campaign that every business creates, that sort of pitch online pitch deck, we review everything that they say, in, and we need them to provide evidence to support any factual statement. So if they have X, say they say they have X number of users, they say they generated Y amount of revenue, we have to see documentary evidence to support that. And we're also looking to make sure that statements about the future are, are properly phrased and, and, and properly structured. So that's one part. That's the disclosure review. Uh, and then before we actually complete the deal, uh, we do uh, legal and structural due diligence on the business. And again, that's the same sort of thing that a, an offline investor would do. Uh, so I wouldn't classify it as heavy handed. I don't think that when you're investing in businesses this size, you can possibly do the kind of due diligence you would do for a multi-billion pound deal. But we right. do try to be quite rigorous. And I think it has shown in the sense that, you know, while while plenty of our portfolio companies have failed, plenty of investments haven't worked out, that's that's you know the nature of this asset class. You know, we've never really had a case, none that I'm aware of at least, where a business raised money and then turned out not to be what it said it was. Right. Okay, great. And uh, how does the economics work? We don't have to be too technical, but in just just in principle, you know, when you go from one country to another, and also, uh, again, I, I'm going to mention your legal background, often lawyers say on behalf of clients, like this is the market, right? So we charge mm -hmm. this side of the equation or that side, and this is the number. And the truth is the market is what you agree. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, how is it for, for you in your main market in the UK? Yeah. So, you know, our, Our core fee structure actually is is the same, you know, wherever we're operating, which is that we charge two basic fees. Uh, one is to the company uh, when they successfully raise capital, we charge them percentage of the amount they raise. And then the other is to the investors when they make a profit on their investment, we charge them carry. And, and that core model is uh, actually quite important to us because what it means is that we get paid when our customer succeeds at doing the thing they wanted to do with us. So a company comes to us, a startup comes 
comes to us because they want to raise capital. So we get paid when they successfully raise capital. An investor comes to us because they want to make a profit. We get paid when they make a profit. So that alignment is key. Now, the exact levels do vary, and it's not even geographic. I mean, the, the, on, on, particularly on the company level commission that we charge, our sort of base rate and the one that would apply to pretty much all small deals is um, 6% uh, of funds raised plus a payment processing fee and, and, and a closing fee. In larger deals, sometimes that'll come down to 4% or 5%. It all depends on the particular circumstances. We also have a package of marketing support that we can provide, and depending on, you know, some of that's included, but some of that we charge separately for. But broadly speaking, you're talking about somewhere between 4 to 6% plus some fees, plus some third-party fees uh, charged to the company. And then to investors, we charge a simple 7.5% carry uh, on any upside realize. So you buy, you, you invest for 100 euros, you sell for 200 euros, you get your first 100 euros back for free, and then you get 92.50 on the second 100, and we take 7.50. And that's the core model. And, you know, they're, you know they're, we're always, you know, like any business, looking at how we can you know, continue to introduce more forms of value that we can charge on. But for now, that's where we make our, our main money. Right, understood. And, uh, you know, you're a marketplace. And uh, especially in your case, I think uh, you're leveraging partnerships. Uh, you have some great partnerships, uh, Andy Murray and uh, British PE and VC Association and others. So how do you work together? How does that help you to, to get further? It all depends. Every partnership, it can be a little bit different. I mean, I think a number of the partnerships that we've done over time have really been about deal flow referral. You know, I, it, 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 there are a number of companies who come through organizations, whether it's somebody like the BBCA or any number of other uh, organizations where they um, come through and are looking for places to raise capital and, and, and those folks refer them on to us. And, you know, some of those are very active partnerships. Some of them are more casual and ad hoc, but that becomes, you know, a a, a a very uh, important source of deal flow and sometimes investor flow uh, for us as well. Um, then sometimes we have, you know, more unusual partnerships. So the Andy Murray relationship, which we had for three or four years, was was really quite exciting. I mean, in some ways, it was, you know, a, similar to a celebrity endorsement, the way you might have for a, a, a type of athletic wear. But actually, this was a lot more, more substantive. You know, Andy was very interested in becoming an, an active investor, learning about investing in early stage businesses and and you know we partnered with him to both give him an opportunity to you know make some investments through the platform while also for us to be able to leverage his brand and his reach uh, and it was really it was a great partnership it was a very exciting partnership um, whether we would do something like that again I don't know but the opportunity was there at the time and it, it worked very well so I think I think the key with partnerships is is that you know you can have standard arrangements that work you know for what they do but a bit of flexibility and an and and an ability to create partnerships where there's mutual benefit on both sides and design it in the way that maximizes that benefit is is key. And, and, I, and that's what we've done in a number of cases. All right. Well, great. So you mentioned some of the startups that are quite high profile and you raise the money for. Uh, money for. So which are your top uh, few uh, startups that you're the most proud of that you raise money for? <laughs> you know, it's that's a great question. And 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 it's it's obviously it's difficult uh, to answer for a few reasons, one of which is that, you know, there's a little bit of the kind of all my all my sons element to it. You know, we, we, we have, right. um, you know, we, you know, it's been great to work with, you know, all of these companies over time. 
Uh, it's hard to pick favorites. Certainly a few of the early ones, though, who took chances on us long before we were an established platform are businesses that I owe a, a big debt of gratitude for, to. You know, we in our, one of the things that we were most concerned about, and, and as, as any marketplace, I think, is when we launched was, you know, how do you get that initial traction? How do you ensure that you don't sort of open the doors and then find yourself, you know, sitting there with tumbleweed going by. And so we were really, really focused. And it's particularly true in our space because, you know, there are a lot of people out there who will tell you, you know, who will, you know, tell you that they're great at raising money for startups. They'll tell you how to raise money, the pictures, they'll do everything, but they won't actually get you any money. And, and a good entrepreneur can see right through that. So it was very important to us that we we demonstrate ourselves as an as an active marketplace from day one. And so we got some great deals onto the platform on our on on you know on the day we launched in 2012. And of the three first of the first three companies to fund with us, two are still going quite successfully, uh, Adludio, an ad tech business, and Swogo, a SaaS business for e-commerce. They both raised very small amounts of money. Swogo raised, I don't know, 17,000 pounds or something. Adludio, a little bit more than that. But these were businesses that were just starting out, took a chance on us, and you know, have since gone on to raise a bunch more money from a bunch of other people and, and, and done really, really very well. So those were very exciting. And much as I, you know, much as I should talk about the Revoluts or businesses like Anna Money, which just, which we've just delivered a great exit on, um, or, or, or Podpoint, the electric charging business that, that again, uh, just exited and, and made some great returns for investors. Uh, I do have a soft spot for some of the small early guys who just fought through from, from day one and, 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 and have gone on to do great stuff. Right. And uh, well, that was on the positive side. But on the negative side, did you also have moments where you thought, well, maybe this is not going to work out? And if you did, how did you overcome that? I think there was really, there's really only been one point since we launched where I ever had real doubts. And that was about two or three months after launch, because we, we had a successful launch. We launched at the beginning of July. And as I say, we got Got three deals funded, you know, two of which I just mentioned, and you know we were getting interest and we were getting lots of press coverage, and it was all very exciting. And then there was a kind of lull, and you know, if you look at any any sort of people, you, know, you look at various people talking about, you know, the journey of building a startup, you know, the valley of death is a, a well-known kind of concept, and and we were so clearly in it. You know, we got in this initial hype, but then it all went quiet, and we couldn't quite figure out how to build our way back out of it. And so there was a period there where we knew that what we had, we, we never had any doubt that what we had was both valuable and something that would be a significant part of the ecosystem someday, whether it was done by us or by somebody else. But we did get to that one period about October of 2012, where we just thought, you know, my God, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to build traction from here? And slowly but surely, some hard work, uh, a healthy dose of luck, a couple of interesting deals coming onto the platform through through some, some good fortune. And we, we built our way out of it and kept on going. Going. And really, since then, never, never looked back. You know, the challenges we face these days are all around optimization and prioritization. Where do we focus, you know, to achieve the most growth? How can we grow faster than we're growing? But we've never had any doubts uh, since then about the fact that we could do this. Great. Good to hear. And um, well, I, I don't want to be a party pooper, <laughs> right? But uh, this uh, 2020 didn't turn out so far <laughs> the way we wanted, right? So did you see any impact of the pandemic on your business as well or you know the fundraising volumes and things like that people are talking about that it will be harder and harder for startups to raise money this year uh, but also there are others who say well it depends on the sector and on 
you know, whether there is an opportunity even coming out of this and maybe then you're better positioned than the others. Yeah. So it was really, really interesting. So when, when the enormity of the pandemic hit in Britain in about mid-March, when it was clear that we were going into lockdown and, and, and that there was, you know, that this was, that this was going to be serious, we saw a significant drop in activity on both sides, both businesses and investors for about two weeks. Um, you know, investors, you know, I'm sure wondering what was happening to their jobs and wondering, you know, you know, what, what the future held, you know, were, were closing their wallets and businesses that were planning to go live just said, this isn't the time to go live, let's hold. And so for about two weeks, we saw a very significant dip. And then something happened toward the end of March where it all came back and it got back to normal and at times above normal levels. Now, I, I look, I, I this should have been a pretty big growth year for us. And I, I, I don't think it will be. I think it'll be flat to small growth. So I'm not saying that, been, that there will have been no effect at all. But ever since about the end of March, we have seen a significant amount of activity and we're sort of at or slightly above uh, where we were um, this time in, in 2019. And and I think that's down to a couple of things. I think one is, you know, as you say, some sectors benefit, some, you know, while some don't. Part of being such a diversified platform is that, you know, there are there will always be businesses, you know, in sectors that benefit. I mean, one of the businesses that just coincidentally was getting ready to go live right about the time that this all happened was a British company called the Cheeky Panda. Cheeky Panda makes a sustainable, high-quality form of toilet paper. Well, at a time when toilet paper was being hoarded and and, and and flying off the shelves, investors decided, hey, this looks like something we'd like to be part of. And they, they've obviously been, been booming through this period. So, you know, a number of, of businesses, I think, have benefited from that. But I think the other thing that's really interesting is that People, whether it's investors or entrepreneurs, but people who are, are predisposed toward this asset class, you know, so you know, you've got to be a bit of a risk taker and a bit of a forward thinker to want to invest in this space to begin with. But if you're already in this space, I think people are willing to adjust quite quickly. And there was a real parallel in what we saw in March. Um, to what we saw in late June of 2016. So in late June 2016, the UK voted to leave the European Union. And there was panic among many people uh, who sort of felt that, you know, we're going to lose our jobs, the economy is going to go off a cliff. And for about two weeks, the platform slowed to a halt. And then even though nothing was solved, even though, as we all know, there would be another three and a half years of wrangling, and it's still not settled, you know, what the departure really looks like, People sort of adjusted to the new normal. They realized that the sky hadn't quite fallen in and everything came roaring back. And so I think we've now seen that trend twice, once with the Brexit vote and now with the pandemic. And I find that encouraging. Right. Okay. Well, great, Jeff. Thank you very much for your insights. And uh, maybe one last question, uh, potentially obvious, but where do people find out more about Cedars and what kind of people would you like to hear from most uh, do you want more investors than the startups or both or the other way around? We want both. I mean, the, the joy um, and challenge of a two-sided marketplace is that you're always scaling on both sides. So I would say, you know, anybody who wants to invest, allocate a bit of their capital to a high growth asset class and is willing to take the risk, um, please do take a look at the businesses we have on the platform. Entrepreneurs, likewise, who are interested in learning more about raising capital, you know, can can come straight to the platform at cedars.com, S-E-E-D-R-S.com. When we came up with the intentional misspelling, we didn't think about 
how that would play on podcasts and radio, but there you go. But we, we would encourage anybody to, to take a, a look. And then also, you know, follow us on Twitter. We're at Cedars. Uh, I'm at Jeff Cedars. I'm always happy to engage directly. You know, we've had some success as a business, but we're by no means Leviathan and I and our CEO and the senior team love talking with both entrepreneurs and investors who want to learn more. So we encourage you to uh, to reach out uh, anytime. All right. Well, great. Thank you very much, Jeff, and good luck to Cedars. Thank you so much, Rudy. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.